welcome to Professor Dave Debates. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Today we have a very special episode because it was recorded on location at SciComm Camp. That is Science Communication uh, summer camp, essentially, although it was in November. I, uh, I was just there a couple weeks ago. And it's a place where uh, all kinds of different science communicators get together. It's essentially a conference, but we call it a camp because there's campfires and all kinds of fun camp-like activities. But uh, there were a lot of journalists and uh, a couple other YouTubers, such as myself, uh, some scientists that are looking to get into SciComm. So it was a really fun weekend. Um, it's so fun to be around like-minded people. Uh, I learned a lot, and of course, the best part is just being around your colleagues and sort of remembering, hey, you know, we're, there's a lot of us that are in this together. And while I was there, among all of these brilliant science communicators, I was able to convince a few of them to sit down with me to have a chat. And one such person was Dr. Adam Becker, who is a PhD astrophysicist and freelance science writer who just published a book called What is Real? The Unfinished Quest for the Meaning of Quantum Physics. So this is just out now. I actually picked up a copy uh, while I was at camp. Uh, I, I look forward to getting a chance to read it. Uh, and uh, But I did flip through it in preparing for this conversation. And uh, uh, Adam, he just knows a ton about not just quantum physics, but the history of quantum physics. And so this is going to be a really fun episode because for those of you who heard my previous episode on the interpretations of quantum mechanics, this is going to be a very natural continuation of that because in that episode we sort of outline some of the different interpretations there are of quantum mechanics, including Copenhagen interpretation and other less popular ones. And in this conversation with Dr. Becker, we are going to get a little deeper. We're going to talk about the Einstein-Bohr debates. What were they talking about? What did they disagree about? Dr. Becker is a very, very good historian of physics in this regard uh, and is able to elucidate sort of uh, the discrepancies that there were in terms of the way they understood physics, the way they understood the world, the way they understood the universe. And uh, there's just a ton to talk about here. So uh, we start off here talking a little bit just about SciComm camp since we're all revved up uh, as the camp itself was winding to a close. And then we will go on to talk about Einstein and Bohr as well as other topics in physics and astrophysics. So here's me talking to Dr. Adam Becker regarding Einstein versus Bohr. Yeah, camp's pretty great. Yeah, uh, no, this is always a lot of fun. Any and, highlights? Uh, well, I mean, this is the first time I ran my own, you know, session here, mm -hmm. and uh, that was definitely a new experience. Uh, I've never run a session on how to, you know, make a book proposal and actually turn it into right. a book. And uh, but you know, I just went through that process. Exactly. And, um, You're the one to talk to. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, I mean, it went well. Um, people, people seem mm -hmm. to get a lot out of it. They said they did. If uh, I wasn't so utterly daunted by the idea of <laughs> writing a book, I would have been at your workshop. Well, I mean, you I know, that's part of what I covered was, you know, how to be less daunted. Right. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, absolutely. It's, uh, so that yeah. was, that was a lot of fun. I mean, also just, you know, um, I'm, I'm a freelance science writer, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's the reality of my day to day work. I mm -hmm. do, I do other stuff, but that's most yeah. of what I do. And, you know, it's lonely work. And writing right. a book is lonely work. And it's really nice to be here 
with other people it's the who best. understand. Yeah, I think that's exactly. the main reason we're all here. Oh, yeah. We're just so, like, even more than learning anything, we're just like, oh, we're all, oh, we're all doing this. I'm yeah. not so alone. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is part of why, <laughs> you know, that one session that they always have every year, the freelancer, freelancer support, support group. Yeah, yeah exactly. We were both at, yeah. Yes, exactly. Just yeah. to sort of feel, yes. just to feel togetherness. Exactly. Yeah. But uh, but speaking of your book, so, okay, what is real? I mean, uh, this is great. And I, I so I, I picked this up on the, on the, on the book exchange and I, I'm excited to read it great um and uh so i do want to kind of get into that a little bit and sure and so you're you know in in researching this book and writing this book you're, you're definitely you've become an expert in sort of the history of quantum mechanics or of, of, of quantum physics yeah i guess that's probably fair to say it's always a little weird to think of myself as an expert about anything but well but yeah. come on that's <laughs> yeah. you don't have to be humble yeah well no but it's still Right. You, yeah, I recognize that you're probably right, but it's still really weird to think of yeah. myself as an expert, right? That's just life. Experts I think. are other people. <laughs> experts are <laughs> experts are mommies and daddies, yeah. <laughs> not us children. But exactly. um, what can we? So I I I I want to understand as best I can. It is something that I struggle with, you know, as much as I try to read. Um, but I, one thing I've been always fascinated with and what I almost think if there was enough public interest would be a great movie or a play Mm. or something is the Bohr Einstein debates or or like a concept album like a progressive rock rock album about Bohr and Einstein Einstein. it would be be by Rush and it would be called Copenhagen yeah that's right right? I mean they made the play right yeah Um, although the play wasn't the play Copenhagen wasn't about the Bohr Einstein debates it was about the encounter between Bohr and Heisenberg right oh really yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, it's a really good play, uh-huh. but it's it's really about World War II. It's not really about yeah. the Bohr Einstein debates. Okay. Yeah. But do they make like they make little cameos. Oh yeah, right. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's more about like Manhattan Project and stuff. Uh, it's it's really it's a three person play. Like mm-hmm. the the cameos are just in in you know who gets mentioned. It's mm-hmm. a really wonderful play by Michael Frayn, and it's basically just three people on stage. It's Bohr, Heisenberg. And uh, Margaret Bohr, mm-hmm. Bohr's wife. I mean, t- simply to have any p- uh, any media where those are the the, right. the, the actor or, or the characters, I, I think that's that's great. That's oh yeah, a huge step forward. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, no, I don't know of anybody who's done anything like that for the Bohr Einstein debates, which is kind of crazy. Now that I maybe think I'll about be it. the first. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so let's let's walk through it a little bit. What was it that initially? I mean, because they were amicable and they were friends and they sort of worked through this together. Right? Oh yeah. But what were some of the key things that they did? really see eye to eye on well i mean einstein really well let me back up a moment hold on sure yeah you start where you need to because i don't know where we sort of dive into the absolutely yeah so so i think there's a lot of misconceptions about the debate right like the one quote like people know about this debate the one quote they know is einstein saying god doesn't play dice exactly god even i know that yeah exactly and 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 i went when I went to Copenhagen and I saw Niels Bohr's grave, someone had put a pair of dice on his grave. <laughs> and, and then they're taken away and then someone brings another. I'm sure, yeah. yes. It's exactly. like Bongs by Jim Morrison grave. <laughs> it's something like that. Yeah, probably probably somewhat less demand and less tourism. Yeah. But still, yes. I mean, he's, you know, he's one of the most famous residents of Copenhagen. Everybody there knows his name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so everybody knows that quote. And I mean, yeah, Einstein did say that. Or, well, some people will get persnickety and say, oh, Einstein didn't say that. It's mm-hmm. technically true. Einstein said, I do not believe that he plays dice and it's a capital H. So yes, Einstein said, right. I don't believe God it's plays true. dice. It's true, yeah. yeah. People exactly. are always like, Einstein believed in God. It's like, right. well, no, yeah, a, a soft God. Yeah, exactly. Lowercase g God. Yeah, yeah, he was very, very clear about this. But yeah, but yeah. it is true that Einstein said 
uh, I don't believe God plays dice. Or he said mm-hmm. something, yeah, some really, really well. Similar. So yeah. to to unpack but, that a little bit from from yeah. from a from a relative layperson uh, yeah. uh, 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 approach here, he's just talking about it, it was just that seismic shift in science where we were starting to understand that the most fundamental level of reality that uh, that it is probabilistic rather than deterministic, right? Or at least that's how it looks. And that's how it looks. We'll come back to that, but yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so that's that's what Einstein was complaining about. And so I think because that quote is so quotable and so famous, people think, oh, okay, this was mm-hmm. Einstein's basic problem. Mm-hmm. His problem was that there was this sort of fundamental randomness that seemed to be showing up in quantum physics, the physics of really small fundamental stuff. Mm-hmm. And and let, let's just, let's broaden that one iota. So yeah, sure. what was random? Um, I mean, you know, basically the theory, which works really well, quantum physics, mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't let us make absolute predictions about what's going to happen. It lets us make extremely accurate predictions about the probabilities of right. what's going to happen, like in the outcomes of our experiments or in the natural world around us. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was, you know, alarming to a lot of people, including Einstein. But that was not Einstein's main problem mm-hmm. with the theory. I think, it, like, people think it is because of that quote. And when I say people, I mean, I mean, like, a lot of physicists seem to Even, think that that's yeah. the problem. But is very clear if you read more of Einstein's writing than just that one quote it's very clear that while that did bother him mm-hmm. that was not his main problem he had two main problems two main problems were he thought that quantum physics lacked a concept of reality that 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 you know there should be this idea that the world is around when we're not looking at it and yes we can influence the world around us but, you know, the, the world around us does not depend on us for its existence. Right. And Einstein felt that there was a lot uh, of, of what the other founders of quantum physics were saying. Because, you know, it was a team effort. There were a lot of physicists involved. Yeah. Um, he felt that a lot of them were saying things that basically amounted to saying reality is not there when you're not looking. Right. Fast forward a few decades and you've got quantum mysticism. <laughs> right. And, uh, exactly. We create yes. our own reality. Yeah. Taken yeah. So yeah. literally. Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, there's there's this famous incident where Einstein's walking down the road with a pupil of Bohr, mm-hmm. um, a guy named Abraham Pace, who uh, ended up uh, becoming a science writer later in life, actually wrote mm-hmm. biographies of both Einstein and Bohr. Um, and they were walking down the street in Princeton sometime in the early 1950s and talking about quantum physics. And then Einstein turns to Pace and says, I, do you really think the moon's not there when you're not looking? Like, you really think the moon's just, you know, in some indeterminate state when you're not right. looking at it? And, and I mean, this was Einstein's real problem. Like, is the moon there when nobody right. looks? And he thought the answer to that was an emphatic, yes, I do too. Um, Me as well. I'm yeah. a reductionist. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, these it, it's not that we have no effect on the world around us. It's just that, you know, the effect is not so large as to make the moon not exist right. when we're not looking. But, but did Bohr's quantum physics propose something so radical or or because I, I like to I like to like if I just think of the probabilistic universe I, and I just limit it to subatomic particles then it's like a little easier to swallow and then it sort of blends into determinism as you get to mm. even just a small molecule or larger 
Right. You know what I mean? Like, like for example, so it, I, I'm very, uh, you know, I, this is a little, uh, I just want to hear about this, but I think my listeners do too, like to get even more specific, like, can you describe a quantum system like an electron or something and tell me what Bohr said, this is what's going on and what Einstein would say, no, I don't like that. You know what I mean? What, just to get very specific yeah, about it absolutely. so I can understand. Yeah. So I can do a little bit of that, but, okay. but first I got to put a disclaimer on it. Nobody really knows what Bohr said. Oh. Bohr was a famously terrible writer and speaker. There are a lot of people who claim that they understand what Bohr was saying. Mm -hmm. They don't agree with each other. Wow. Yeah. So like, I, I think that there are as many readings of Bohr as there are people reading Bohr. What a cryptic figure. Yeah. He was, he was a very weird dude and, and not a very good writer. And so I don't claim to know what Bohr's actual position was. I do however, think I have a good handle mm -hmm. on what people thought, what most people thought mm -hmm. Bohr was saying. Well, we can speculate here. That's no Exactly, yeah. yeah. So um, that being said, uh, I think that the classic example is Schrodinger's cat, right? Okay. And I mean, just because it's a classic doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it. I think, I think it's a classic for a reason. It's a for pretty sure. good example. Right. So you've got, you've got this setup with a slightly radioactive lump of metal and a radiation detector, a Geiger counter, that's going to go off if it detects any radiation coming from the metal. And then if the Geiger counter goes off, it will trip a hammer that will fall and smash a vial of cyanide. And along with all of this stuff that's in a box, there's also a cat. So basically, if the lump of radioactive metal gives off radiation, then the radiation detector will go off, hammer will fall, smash the vial, kill the cat. Mm -hmm. So what you do is you put all that stuff in the box and you close the box and then you wait for say half an hour. And at that point, quantum physics is gonna say, okay, there's a 50-50 shot that when you open the box, you will find a living cat. Right, essentially tethering the abstract nature of a quantum event to right. a macroscopic, physical, tangible, right. the cat needs to be one of these two things. Exactly, right, because right. you know radiation is basically slow motion disintegration, mm -hmm. right? Tiny particles coming off of you know an object as it falls apart, basically. Mm -hmm. And so those tiny pieces of radiation, they're definitely governed by quantum physics. Right. Um, and so this sort of ties that to a big thing, a cat. Right. Right. We, we, we have a pretty good handle on how cats work. Right. Um, the Internet is full of or them. Or at least whether they are alive or at dead. At least whether Anyone they're alive or dead. Tell. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Well, when they're sleeping. But, Maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We uh, had a quantum physics book in, uh, in college that had, you know, a, a cat sort of sitting up and alert on the front cover and a cat sort of lying down with its eyes closed on the back cover. And we used mm -hmm. to joke, no, 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 the cat's just sleeping. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but so, so, so essentially, if one is to propose, and that many people may agree that a, that a particle is in a superposition of having decayed or not having decayed. Exactly, yeah. Then the cat must also be in a superposition of alive or dead. Yeah. So then there are physicists that some say, yes, that cat truly is in that superposition. Right. And some are like, what do you that's ridiculous. Right. Yeah. So, so the usual way of talking about this, and I think that this is like a reasonably good approximation of Bohr's view and Einstein's view, mm -hmm. is that like Bohr's view was, well, look, before you open the box, can't really talk about what's going on in there because it's not observable because you're, you're talking about what's happening in the box before you look. And what happens before you look is right. not something that you can see. And so you have this particle that is in this special state in quantum physics, a superposition, like mm -hmm. you said, where it's both, you know, been emitted from the radioactive lump and not. 
Right. And that means that, you know, the cat is both dead and alive or, you know, neither dead nor alive, but some weird third thing. Right. Uh, until you open the box and that forces it into one state or the other. So that's like purely by having then been observed. Right. Exactly. So right. that is that is the standard take on what Bohr's view was. Einstein and for the record, Schrodinger, who came up with this example exactly for this purpose, both of them thought, no, 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 no. That cat is dead or alive before mm-hmm. I open the box. Who, uh, Einstein says that. Einstein right. says this. Schrodinger says this. Right. Both of them say, no, when we open the box, we find out whether the cat's dead or alive. But it had been one of those. It had prior. been one of those prior to yes. opening the box. So, you know, it's certainly true that in quantum physics, we have some effect on our environment. Mm-hmm. It's not true that you can just observe something without affecting it in the same way that you can look at a cat from across the room without affecting it. Right, because to observe is to measure, and, in, and to measure is to interact. To yeah, exactly. So right. there's to interact to some degree, but there's a difference between you know interacting with something to some degree and bringing it about or bringing it into existence. Mm-hmm. You know, Heisenberg, one of the other founders of quantum physics and a disciple of Bohr, he said, you know, these fundamental objects, you know, electrons and atoms and, and subatomic particles, they don't exist in the same way as the objects around us. We bring them into existence by looking at them. This is definitely not what Einstein's view was, and this is what Einstein didn't like. He thought this was... I'm not wild about it either. Yeah, and and nor am I. So (laughs) Einstein said, you know, this is ridiculous. He he invoked the the 18th century philosophy of uh, a guy named uh, George Berkeley, Mm-hmm. Um, he said, you know, who Berkeley was this, this Irish bishop who said, oh yeah, everything just exists in the mind of God and to be is to be perceived and, and, and perception is what brings things into existence. Right. And Einstein said, that's what you guys are engaging in. You know, you are, you are no better than Berkeley and well, Berkeley was wrong. It's <laughs> true because if atoms only exist because we perceive them, then we predate atoms mm-hmm. and we're made of atoms. So atoms must predate us. Right. So yeah. So, so to any reductionist, this is the cardinal sin right yeah like how how can atoms behave so differently and have such different properties from you know this world around us that's made of atoms and it's not like you know uh-huh. there's certainly properties that can emerge from large quantities of stuff right mm-hmm. things like pressure or temperature they are aggregate properties right. it's hard to talk about the temperature of an individual subatomic particle exactly but you can talk right. about the temperature of a group of particles sure. and you can also get complicated behaviors from large groups of things like flocking and swarming mm-hmm. and, and consciousness consciousness yes on. exactly yeah yeah. Uh, yeah although of course that's up for debate but yeah exactly um yeah. but yeah you can certainly like flocking and swarming are not up for debate yeah. um so um so yeah um, so Einstein, this was one of his two really big problems with quantum physics was he felt it lacked this fundamental concept of a reality that was around whether or not we're looking. Mm-hmm. The other problem he had with it, which was related, was that he, he thought that if you really insisted on that sort of lack of reality, then you would end up having these strange long distance connections um, between you know widely separated objects, you know something here in this room and something on the moon, 
that could instantaneously affect each other, no matter spooky how far apart they are. Spooky action at a distance. Spooky action at a distance. Yeah, yeah spooky <laughs> action at a distance, exactly. And, and I actually, uh, so I have this hat here oh, with wow. me. Uh, I dressed up as spooky action for uh, at a distance for Halloween. So for the with, listeners, we have a hat and we have a we have a large arrow pointing up. Yes. So you're pointing at at your at the quantum particle that is tethered to you. Uh, yeah. The, far the, far away. Well, no, no, no. See, there's two hats. Uh-huh. Uh, so I got this hat while I was staying with a friend up in Seattle. I had it mailed to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other hat with a down arrow was mailed. Oh, spin up, to, spin down. Yes. I guess. So the other hat with a, with a down arrow was mailed to my friend Katie, mm-hmm. uh, Katie Mack, Astro mm-hmm. Katie on Twitter. She, um, lives in North Carolina mm-hmm. and we had this friend of mine make these hats and then send them to us and not tell us which hat was in which box. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and so this is, this is a sort of cartoon, not quite right version right. of a famous thought experiment that Einstein proposed called the EPR thought experiment. Mm-hmm. Cause he, he proposed it with two collaborators, the Einstein, uh, Pod- Podolsky Rosen thought experiment. Glad yeah. I knew that. <laughs> yeah, no, you got it right. So, so yeah, the basic idea is if, we don't know, you know, if these if these objects don't have these properties until we look at them, like if the cat's really not alive or dead until we look, there are situations you can set up in quantum physics where you can send two particles flying off at very high speeds, near the speed of light or at the speed of light, in opposite directions, and one of them, you, you don't know, according to quantum physics, you, you mm-hmm. can't predict which one will be in which state, but you know mm-hmm. that one of them, uh, when you look, is going to be in a spin-up state. It'll right. be spinning in a particular direction, and the other one will be in a spin-down state. Mm-hmm. But quantum physics doesn't give you a way of predicting which one will be which before you look. Mm-hmm. Um, so Einstein said, well, look. What that means is, if we send one particle you know, off to California and the other one off to you know, the moon, then I can open up my box here in California and see, oh, my particle is spin up. Mm -hmm. And instantly I know that the other particle is going to be spin down. And And how could that information have propagated so quickly? Yeah, it's it's not even so much that I know that it's spin down. It's that immediately the other particle, if if it gets measured half a second later, and it Mm -hmm. takes light more than half a second to get from here to the moon, but if it gets measured half a second later then it's definitely going to be spin down because mine right. was spit up. How did it know to do that? Right. It, either, the, and so Einstein said, look, there's two options. Either something went faster than light between them, mm-hmm. or... There was some information there was inf- that, yeah. in the system that was known exactly. by the system. Exactly, yeah, you know? that, that, that in, you know, these particles had definite states when they separated from each other in the first place. Right. And so this was this was Einstein's argument. Bohr gave a response to this argument that was not clear in typical Bohr style. He actually <laughs> later in life apologized for how unclear it was, but did not really clarify. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a famously unclear response. There's all sorts of stories about it. Um, what was the gist? Uh, the, 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 the gist of Bohr's response. That's an incredibly hard question. Um, <laughs> Can I do that? Um, we might have to edit this out. We'll see. The gist of Bohr's response to EPR was that there is no faster than light connection, but that 
what experiments you choose to do will influence what outcomes you get, which is true as, that's, first of all, that's not all that he said, and that's only one interpretation of what he said. He was very unclear. So the way we probe reality affects reality? Right, and, and that's true as far as it goes, but it doesn't actually address Einstein's not point. Not so much. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so, and so he, he did perform this experiment. Well, right? no, this, this experiment was not really... It was really, a thought experiment? Yeah, it was a thought experiment. Okay. This experiment was not really performed until after both Moore and Einstein were dead. Mm-hmm. Um, is that we just, we just didn't have the we didn't have the apparatus? Yeah, I mean, actually, there were experiments like this that were performed. I think after Einstein was dead, but before Bohr died, like in the late 1950s. But, um, but you know that you can always say uh, something like, "No, you know, that's just you know I, Einstein's just not right," and and not really respond to the argument in a compelling way. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I think, what happened. Um, but yeah, I mean, like Einstein made this argument, and there was not a very good response. Um, the experiment was done, and it was found that, yeah, you know, one's always spin up and the other's always spin down, but, you know, Bohr said that that's not a problem for us. And, and you could always choose to believe that Einstein was right and that, you know, the particle that was spin up was always spin up and the particle that was spin down was always spin down. And that quantum mechanics is just not complete, which is what Einstein was saying. He was saying the mm-hmm. theory works as far as it goes, but it's not done. But then, <laughs> and this is the truly weird part, then a guy named John Bell came along. And this was after both Bohr and Einstein were gone. Uh, and he said, okay, actually, I think that we can do an experiment to sort of figure out what's happening here or a little bit more about what's happening here. And he proposed, yeah, instead of just looking at whether the particles spin up or spin down, quantum mechanics and you know the, the, the actual world around us, we can build machines that will measure the spin of a particle along a different axis. We don't have to just measure up and down, we could measure left and right, or you know some angle between that. And he pointed out, well, in quantum mechanics, according to quantum mechanics, there will be some correlations. If you, if you measure, you know, spin up and spin down for both particles, you'll always find that one's up and the other's down. But if you measure spin up for one particle and spin like 30 degrees off from up mm-hmm. for the other part, like if you, if you measure the up-down axis for one and something tilted 30 degrees off of that axis for the other one, you know, you will get, you know, one of them will be spin up along one axis and the other will be spin down along that other tilted axis. But there's going to be correlations between these results. Mm-hmm. And these long distance correlations, it turns out, can't be reproduced with the kind of scheme that Einstein had in mind. Mm-hmm. Which means that although Einstein was wrong about, you know, these particles having always had spins before they were sent out it means that einstein was very right to point to this and say this is a serious problem right because what this suggests is there is a faster than light connection Mm -hmm. and that's really weird because you know einstein's relativity says nothing can go faster than light um but this isn't just faster than light this is instantaneous instant yeah 
but it can't be used to send information. It can't be used to, you know, send signals or anything like that. You can prove that you can't use it to send signals. Mm -hmm. So something very strange is going on, something strange and subtle. Uh, and, so and there's something fundamental about the system itself that we that we're not grasping. Exactly, like there's some sort of long distance connection, or something like a long distance connection, or some mm-hmm. something simulating a long distance connection mm-hmm. in some weird way, and we need to account for how that's possible and how that works. Or, or we're not fully understanding what a superposition is. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's something missing from our understanding of how this works, and there are a lot of proposals that have been put out there to account for how this works. Uh, you know, one way is to say, okay, look, there's actually something faster than light here, um, and and this gets into different interpretations of quantum physics, different ways of thinking about what quantum physics tells us is real in the world around us. Mm-hmm. So one way is to say there's something actually going faster than the speed of light. And if you say that, one way to do that is to subscribe to this this theory called pilot wave theory, which I'm not going to get into because that's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very interesting theory. Um, and that involves actual long distance, you know, instantaneous connections. Another way is to say, okay, there's something wrong with the way that you've thought about the way this experiment is set up. You've missed something. And um, one way to sort of do that and, uh, and sort of get out of Bell's idea, get out of his theorem, um, is to say, okay, you know, you didn't record, you, you don't actually have the full results of the experiment. It looks like you do. It looks like it, the experiments have single outcomes when you measure the spin of a particle, it only comes out either up or down. But if instead you say, no, it's actually both, then you can get out of Bell's theorem. So the way to do that is to say, okay, we live in a many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. We have, uh, when you make that measurement, you know, you split into two copies. One copy measures spin up and the other copy measures spin down. Um, so that's another way out. And there, there are other ways out as which, well. Which sounds wonderful when, it, when it's a flip of the coin type situation. Right. But I mean, it, but, but when you really think about it, it generates an infinity of infinity. Of, yeah. It's just an infinite right. infinities of reality. It is a very, very strange interpretation. It's very messy. <laughs> but it sits there in the math. Like mm-hmm. there's, there's definitely some mathematical structures in the theory that suggest that that's the way that it works. And that's part of why it's very popular. Um, I don't subscribe to it myself, but I also don't think that it's a ridiculous idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So how how does this all? I mean, it's remarkable. This is really the only area of science that I, that I'm aware of that has so many interpretations yeah. and so many question marks and so many people that are just like, no, it's like this, no, it's like this, and and has persisted that way for decades. Yes. It how has, does that yeah. tie into where we are today, the forefront of theoretical physics and astrophysics? Um, we're looking for quantum field theory for gravity. Why yeah. is that so hard? What does that have to do with all of this stuff? Well, I mean, we don't know is the short answer. Right. We, we, because we don't know what a theory of quantum gravity looks like. But, you know, we've been searching for a theory of quantum gravity for decades. I mean, it used to be a lonely search that only a few physicists, including Einstein, were involved in. But now, you know, it's this, it's this theoretical problem of the first rank that many of the great minds of physics are working on. Mm-hmm. And more and more of them are saying things like, well, look, we're stuck. We've been working on this for decades, and we don't know what's right or what the right solution is. 
maybe it's time to turn to the foundations of the theories that we already have and see if we can get some insight from mm -hmm. the questions that are sort of lurking there. Mm -hmm. Because for a long time, you know, these, these unresolved questions at the heart of quantum physics, they sort of went unresolved in part because the theory was working very, very well, and so there was no need to sort of go back and re-examine, you know, hey, how does this theory work, and there are these puzzling things about it uh, that, that we don't really fully understand. But now that we're in this place where we realize, okay, we're running up against the limits of our knowledge, the limits of what this theory can do, and we're not sure what mm -hmm. direction to go in next, uh, you know, it seems like it's time to go back and take a look and say, okay, we have these different interpretations to understand what's going on, the foundations of this theory, and it's one of the two theories that we're trying to, you know, merge together. Right. Can that, can one of those interpretations, you know, um, guide us in the correct direction for coming up with a theory of quantum gravity? Mm -hmm. and, and some people think the answer is yes. I mean, there are... Well, so yeah. what, what is it about, coming from uh, the standpoint of a non-physicist, what is it about general relativity that's not enough mm. right uh, the, my understanding of just curvature of space-time um th that seems ni neat n uh, nice and tidy to me yeah so where does it fail is the answer just it's a ton of math and <laughs> there's no point to no i mean th there's there's i mean yes that's like the real deep answer is there's a lot of math there some mm -hmm. of which i don't even really fully grasp myself i i know you know, I'm, I'm not someone looking for a theory of quantum gravity, but, you know, I have a handle on the stuff and on, on you know, general relativity mm -hmm. and quantum field theory. And basically, the problem is in quantum field theory, uh, you know, we'd want gravity to be a force. We'd want it to be a force like electromagnetism, a force carried by a particle. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, mediated by particles and by a field. And do we just want that because we want it because it's we, nice and tidy? Or we we want there... that because that's how quantum field theory works. Quantum mm -hmm. field theory is a th it's a theory of quantum fields. Right. Uh, he said uselessly. Um, because yeah. like for electromagnetism, I can get on board with 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 uh, you know with 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 Feynman and I and I like right. sort of get it. And then like QCD, I like get it a little less. Right. Yeah. But I'm, then I get to like quantum gravity. And I'm like, but wait, why do we need it? Yeah. So well. Well, so why we need it is because there are certain physical situations that we think exist in the universe today or have existed in the early universe that we can't describe with the theories that we have now, okay. right? So, like, we need it because we don't understand what happens in a black hole. We need it because we don't understand what happened in the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. Because general relativity is the theory of gravity, right? And gravity is a very weak force. And so it really only comes in and becomes really important when you're dealing with extremely heavy objects, which are usually very large. Whereas quantum, quantum physics and quantum field theory, um, they are theories uh, that, that really shine and really have their strongest applicability for small things. The teeny tiny. Right. So, so when, when you, you have, have a, a massive, small, yeah. when you have a small, massive thing, right. like a black hole, especially the center of a black hole, like the Big Bang, right. that's when you start to need a theory of quantum gravity. So that's why we need it. But why is it hard? Well, we have quantum field theory, which is a theory about fields that mediate forces like electromagnetism. Um, and those forces, you know, they're, they're mediated by, by these fields that, you know, have 
like excitations in those fields. Like if you kick them, they get excited and the excitations in those fields, uh, the, the way they respond to being kicked, those are particles, right? Like photons are little packets of electromagnetic field energy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then they hit our eyes and we see things. It's light, mm-hmm. right? Um, in quantum field theory, those fields live in a background of space and time. Um, the problem is that in general relativity, space and time are not fields. They are the players. They're not the stage. They're the actors. Oh. And, and so now we're taking this stage that quantum field theory sort of lives on and we're warping it. And to make things even worse, in general relativity, gravity's not a force. Right. Gravity's just geometry. Uh, you know, in, in, in that sense... General relativity is not really a very good name for it. Uh, some people have suggested calling it uh, geometrodynamics because it's how things move, dynamics, mm-hmm. based on the geometry of the space around them. Right. Um, so, you know, in, in general relativity, an object falls not because gravity is pulling on it, but because the space around it is warped in such a way that falling is, is sort of the natural action for it to take. Right. Um, it's, it's the shortest path through space and time for it to take. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you have these two very different pictures of what gravity is and what the world is. In general relativity, um, space and time are dynamic things. That, or space-time is a dynamic thing that can change depending on the stuff in it. And there is no force called gravity. Right. Um, and in quantum field theory... You know, if we wanted to put gravity in it, well, you know, the problem is we'd have to treat gravity like it's a real force and we have space and time as sort of, you know, space time as the background that everything happens on. Mm-hmm. And then these we are need just the two, graviton. Right, exactly. So these are just two very different pictures of how the world works. Right. Um, and it's very hard to combine them and that's reflected in the math. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the best explanation I can give, I think. It's a pretty good one. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I mean, yeah, I, I just I I dream of learning enough math to begin <laughs> to comprehend this stuff. But um yeah. I mean, general relativity the math is pretty challenging as is for quantum field theory. My grasp on both of those theories is not where I'd like it to be. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, I learned them. I understand them to a point. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, quantum mechanics, special relativity, which are sort of like the, the sort of first steps toward both of those theories, mm-hmm. those are not terribly hard theories to learn, especially special relativity. Yeah, you can I took do a that. course on it in undergrad. Exactly, I yeah. I think I got a B plus. <laughs> yeah, special relativity, you can <laughs> do, do right. yeah, you can do it without calculus. Like mm-hmm. I could, you know, you can do an hour-long lecture on special relativity. And get the gist. And get the gist Just of it. to look at the lines, to, lines transform. Exactly, equation. yeah. You can, you can explain that to people who who know, you know, like... Algebra. Who, yeah, algebra and, like, the Pythagorean theorem, yeah. and that's it. Yeah. yeah. So, no, it's high school Which math. is remarkable. Yeah, it really. is completely amazing that it doesn't require anything more than that. Now, of course, if you want to dive into, like, the deeper stuff within special relativity, then you need more. Mm-hmm. But the gist of it and the basics, you can do that with some pretty basic math, and, and all of this other stuff sort of flows from that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's... Um, I mean, it's, they're fascinating theories. 
Yeah. Yeah. And an, and an exciting time for them. Yes, it is. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, well, so what's happening next and then maybe to wrap, is there anything because you're, 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 you're an astrophysicist, right? Yeah. Uh, what, is there anything in astrophysics happening right now that, that you're really stoked on and, and, and eager to think about and talk about? That's a good question. Um, feel like there's a good answer to this and it's going to come to me about five minutes after we turn this off. You, uh, you just have the epiphany right now yeah, and you tell exactly. me what dark matter is. Yeah. And right. It's like case closed. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean like a good answer to what I'm excited Even about. Even what you're but, excited yeah. about in the first place. Um, I mean, okay. So here's, here's like a really simple answer. Um, I'm excited to see what we learn from LIGO mm -hmm. and from like gravitational waves. Uh, you know, it's opening up an entirely new field of a manner of detection yeah exactly like yeah. you know we we are used to looking at the sky basically only through light right. you know and light comes in many different forms there's visible light infrared x-rays ultraviolet so on and so forth radio which, which is sort of emitted by uh, dim, different objects right different mm -hmm. objects at different temperatures or different sizes or whatnot mm -hmm. so that's great, but that's basically how we've learned almost everything that we know about the sky. There's, mm -hmm. the, you know, we've done a little bit of, you know, detection through other means like neutrinos, but mostly it's been through light. So what and is now, one thing we might expect to glean from this new method of detec detection? Well, I mean, now we can watch black holes merge. Right. I mean, we couldn't do Which that Which is the before. first thing that we, exactly. that we saw. Right? Yeah, 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 exactly right. Yeah, like because they didn't give off much by way of light when that happened. Now, when the neutron stars merged, that, that, that gave off That's a burst a of light. That's a fantastic event. Exactly, yeah. But when the two black holes merged... You know, there wasn't, there was probably some light given off uh, by, you know, the gas and dust surrounding them, but. They're dark. Yeah, they're dark. They're dark, dark objects. They're dark objects. <laughs> they're dark objects. They don't give off much by way of they light. They were dark to start. They're they were dark, dark now to start. Together. And now they're dark. Yeah, exactly. But, but they gave off an immense amount of energy in terms right. of gravitational waves. And we can hear that mm -hmm. and that was uh, within the galaxy, obviously, right? No. That was in, a, in another galaxy? That was, I believe, billions of light years away. Wow. I didn't and know and to give you a, a, a sense of scale there, our galaxy is about 100,000 light years across. Right. No, no. This, this black and, hole Andromeda merger, is like a couple million. Yes, Andromeda is 2 million light years away. Yeah, this is much farther away than that. This, so this happened a long time ago. So how did we even know that the black mer hole merger was going to happen in another galaxy? I didn't even know that we were able to detect uh, like small-scale activity within another galaxy. Oh, there's nothing small-scale about this. Well, I mean small-scale in the sense <laughs> of like individual objects. I thought we could just see galaxies and kind of see from what they're doing, but not like... Oh, I mean, we can't see that in visible light. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, I mean, we can see individual stars in other galaxies using powerful telescopes, oh, wow. but we can't see, you know, anything like a black hole merger happening in a distant galaxy through visible light or even a neutron star merger. Well, we did actually see that through visible light mm -hmm. because, you know, we saw the gamma ray burst, but, um, but yeah, we can't see black hole mergers in visible light, but we can see them using gravitational waves. And it's not like we knew that was going to happen in advance. We thought that it probably would. We mm -hmm. thought, you know, just based on statistics that we'd hear one eventually. We were poised. Right. Yeah. That we had sensitive enough equipment, but we didn't know that that was coming. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we just thought, okay, you know, this should be powerful enough. If two really big black holes merge, we should be able to, to detect that. And, and, I, I will add the amount of energy given off was immense. I mean, these are two black holes. Uh, I believe th these numbers are going to be approximately right. 
I believe the two black holes before they merged had a combined mass of 62 times the mass of our sun. Mm -hmm. The combined black hole that they formed once they merged had a mass of about 59 times the mass of our sun. So three solar masses worth yeah. of energy exactly. were emitted. were emitted in the form of gravitational waves. So three... That's a quintillion hydrogen bombs. Yeah, or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah, like, like three million... Or sorry, three suns worth of mass was converted, converted into energy yeah. through E equals mc squared in the form of gravitational waves wow. billions of light years away. Which is why we got them a little faintly all the way over here. Right, and, and so by the time it got here billions of light years later, um, it, it, it caused a small shift in the distance of, you know, basically a hallway. Right. Um, you know, one arm of this of this gravitational wave observatory, LIGO, it caused, uh, well, I mean, there's two of them, but mm -hmm. uh, it caused small shifts in the lengths of these hallways that were, you know, on, on the order on of the order, nanometers. Yeah, on the order of the size of an atom or less than an atom. Remarkable. Yeah. I mean, that we have the instrumentation here. Yeah. Actually, so, I think it's more like the order of an atomic nucleus. It's wow. really small. Yeah. So will this information potentially help guide uh, a, a plausible direction for quantum gravity? I mean, maybe, because this lets us just probe things using general relativity in a way mm -hmm. that we never could before. Mm -hmm. So who knows what we're going to find? I mean, this is, this is, in a way, this is like we are learning to look at the sky all over again for the first time. It's like we're opening, we're opening our eyes for the first time and we're looking at the world. Who knows what we're going to see? The first thing we saw was two black holes merging, mm -hmm. which is not something that you can see in any other way. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing we saw. What else are we going to see? We, we expected to maybe see something like that. We don't know what else we're going to see. So I am really excited about that. That's phenomenal. Yeah. I'm excited to hear what happens next. I'll yeah. be poised. And I'm excited to read this book. Oh, I'm so I'm glad. Take this home. I'm going to have you sign it for me before, Absolutely. <laughs> before you skedaddle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My pleasure. But uh, thanks for the chat. Absolutely. Yeah, this was a lot of fun, and it's great to see you. Great to see you as well. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.